Happiness is an inside job. At Happy Healthy You, Connie Bowman helps us find our way with inspiring conversations and healthy ideas for living a whole life in mind, body and spirit. Happy Healthy You. And now, here's Connie. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Happy Healthy You, the podcast about living a whole life in mind, body, and spirit. I'm only saying that because it's been so long and I can... No, I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten you. How have you been? What a year, huh? Yeah, Ah, I know. So I, I really felt the need to come back on the podcast to reconnect with you guys and let you know what's going on. And I hope to hear from you as well. Um, and I have a guest today that I think you're just going to love. And she will have a lot of wisdom to share for us at this, um, let's say, let's call it auspicious time in our history. <laughs> Um, did I say that I'm Connie Bowman, the host of the podcast? Maybe I forgot to say that too. Hi, I'm Connie. <laughs> it has been a while. It has been a while. And um, I should mention, we still have our awesome sponsor, Blue Planet Eyewear. They make amazing readers. I'm wearing a pair of them now. I wish you could see them. They're new and they're cute. Um, all different magnifications. If you really have a hard time finding your specific magnification and everything they make is eco-friendly and they give back all around the world and they're just an awesome company. I love working with them. So if you decide to go shopping for your readers or your sunglasses, use code CONNIE20 (laughs) and uh, they can be found at blueplaneteyewear.com. So without further ado, let's introduce my guest because I can't wait to talk to her our guest. I'm sharing her with you. (laughs) Her name is Barbara Becker, and she's a writer and an ordained interfaith minister who's spent more than 25 years partnering with human rights advocates everywhere all around the world in pursuit of peace and interreligious understanding. She's worked with the United Nations, Human Rights First, the Ms. Foundation for Women, and the Grameen Bank of Bangladesh, and she's participated in a delegation of Zen peacemakers and Lakota elders in the sacred Black Hills of South Dakota. I can't wait to hear about this. She has sat with hundreds of people at the end of their lives, and she views each one of them as a teacher. She's a writer, and she explores what it means to live a life of meaning. So she's right up our alley, you guys. She lives in New York City with her family, and she is the author of a new book called The Art of Living with the End in Mind. That's the That's not the actual title, is it, Barbara? It's Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. I read the the subtitle first because I like it. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Connie. (laughs) It's so great to be with you. And you're right. I mean, it really is the message of the book, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to hear a little bit more about you because I think we have a lot in common. We mentioned... um, Gloria Steinem wrote this beautiful tribute to you on the back of your book, and she's my she's one of my buddies. I love Gloria. We met early on in my career, and I reunited with her a few years ago and interviewed her, and she's just the best. 
isn't she wonderful? Mm -hmm. I mean, Gloria is timeless. Mm -hmm. I mean, she just had her 87th birthday, Mm -hmm. and she can relate to women and men who are adolescents, who are in midlife, who are older. I mean, she just can go across the board with her wisdom, and it hits us all in the heart. I totally agree. And she writes um, in your book, or on the back of your book, uh, that telling our stories is probably one of the most important things that we can we can do. Because when we share our stories, we just we really open our hearts and and pave the way for others to share their stories as well. Create community, all the good stuff, right? That's exactly right. I think story is the fastest way to people understanding one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, often we live in a world where we love to spout facts, and facts just don't work all the time. You know, it's, it is said that, you know, Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a fact. He said, I have a dream. You know, he had a story mm-hmm. to tell, a vision to tell. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, poo-poo to all the all of the hardcore facts in the world, and let's get right down to telling our personal stories. Mm-hmm. In fact, Gloria's book, I I um, have a copy of her well her me- her memoir that she wrote a few years back, and she actually because we had reunited, I sparked a memory of uh, the first time we met, and she actually put my name in the book. So I was like, thank you so much. That oh, was really Connie, fun. that's beautiful. It was fun. I have a copy of it. I'll have to look yeah. at that. I think I, I have to look and see what page it is. I had it memorized for a while because I was so excited that she even thought about me. But um, yeah, it was kind of a unique uh, adventure that we had together. So you should check it out. So tell us a little bit more about your background. You You became an interfaith minister at a later age, and we have that in common because I'm now entering seminary myself at a, an even more advanced age. So you had a head start. So tell us how how your spiritual life evolved through, you know, from from early on to now. Sure. So I spent, as you mentioned in the intro, 25 years working with human rights advocates around the world. And it was such a deep honor to do that work. I mean, I worked with people in the crucible of their lives and people who had been imprisoned and put in solitary confinement, tortured for their beliefs. And, um, you know, it really was such a privilege to meet them and to get to know what got them through all of those hard times. And, you know, it kept coming back to how they derived personal meaning in their lives. Um, And I was so intrigued by people's different faith traditions. I mean, I, I was working with Christians in some cases, a wonderful minister who took people on an underground railroad out of North Korea um, and into safety and freedom. Wow. Um, I worked with a Buddhist student activist who derived his meaning from a place of mindfulness while he was in jail for 16 years and being tortured. An incredible Muslim man who... Uh, is in Syria and 
He risked his life to take video footage of what was happening with ISIS out of the country. So people really um, turn to their faith when things get hard. And I wanted to explore that more. So when I hit my late 40s, I did a midlife pivot and I decided to go to this wonderful interfaith seminary in New York City called One Spirit Interfaith Seminary. And our teachers were um, Native American elders and priests and rabbis and monks and you know practitioners of some of the world's great wisdom traditions. And I, um, I, I just grew so much from that experience. It was a little bit unexpected, um, but I, I love this new life that I have being a minister and also turning towards my own writing. Yeah, yeah. Did you, were you raised um, in a particular faith or did yeah, you? Yeah, I was raised across the Protestant traditions and wherever we lived, it was kind of the most convenient of the churches. So mm-hmm. I was baptized in the Presbyterian church and I grew up with the Method Methodists and the Reformed Church of America. And when I went to college, I went to a college that was um, had its had its roots in the Quaker tradition. Mm-hmm. And I Beautiful. remember sitting in the first Quaker meeting that I ever attended during college and Quaker meetings are silent. And I was, you know, I was young. I was like 18 years old and it was almost hilarious to me. Like I I had the worst case of the giggles. I just kind of arose out of nowhere. Like, why are people just sitting here in silence? But when I think of that now, I really give credit to the Quakers for helping introduce me to traditions that would later speak to me so deeply, Mm. like Buddhism and silent meditation retreats, which I love to do now. (laughs) But thank you, Quakers, for, for giving me my very first taste of finding the divine, the inner spark within, in silence. Yeah, yeah. It really, I, I have to say, the same thing happened to me, not through the Quakers, but through more Buddhist. I, I did the 10-day Vipassana silent retreat. Have you did tried you? tried that? A <laughs> retreat? Was it a Goenka? Yes. Inspired? Yeah. Oh, me too. Yeah. Where'd you do it? I did it in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts. And okay. I am telling you, it changed my life. Yeah, same, same. So you guys, they're all across the world. There are these Vipassana retreats and they're basically free. Anyone can go. Um, they, you know, you're free to donate afterwards, but everything is provided for you. You get your meals, your lodging. And, but the, the one caveat is it's silent, <laughs> silent, really silent, really yeah. silent. Yeah. And you should know that they will gong the gong at Mm -hmm. 4 30 in the morning Mm -hmm. to get you out of bed and into the meditation hall and Mm -hmm. if you're not there they might just come find you yeah we had a couple people that got booted because they weren't following the you know the regime regime but it was it was a great experience it really solidified my meditation practice like showed me what it could be right so Absolutely. highly recommend it. So at some point in your life, you decided to tackle the big subject, the one subject that we all have in common. It's I think you write in here that it's the great equalizer. 
I kind of feel like that's what I wrote in my book too. It is the great equalizer. I mean, death will happen to all of us. It's probably the thing we are most afraid of. And certainly we've had our share of death this year and grief and loss um, in so many ways. And so I think your book is so timely, so timely. And maybe you could just talk about your inspiration for writing your memoir. These things, they start to bubble up. And at some point, we just have to get them out. So how, when did that happen for you? And how did, how did it manifest? So looking at death and accepting death as a teacher came to me fairly early on in life. I learned when I was in third grade, quite by accident, by snooping through my father's wallet that he had left on his dresser and finding a picture of a woman who was not my mother, who I didn't know, um, I found out that my father had had another wife who had passed away before he married my mother. And um, it was a story that unfolded over time. My parents were very age appropriate in sort of letting me know little details as they thought I was ready. But um, this beautiful woman, Maureen, um, had recently married my father. They were deeply in love. Um, it was just a few months after their honeymoon when she was killed in a tragic boating accident. And she was pregnant at the time. And my father loved her deeply. He still loved her. I mean, we don't stop loving and missing people, even when we've moved on to a different stage of our lives. So in some way, I have to say that even though I never met Maureen, she was a big part of my life. Uh, my father kept the love letters that they had between one another and I found them when they were out to dinner one night in a, a shoebox in their closet. And every time they would go out, I never really stopped snooping. I would just go in that closet and read these letters. And they were beautiful. I mean, this was like a love I hoped I would have someday. But I would say to my brothers when I came out of the closet with my flashlight, you know, somebody had to die for us to even be born. You know, like it's sort of, it was this mm. existential question that sort of seeped into my life and I couldn't let it go. So I would say that I grew up with Maureen in the shadows, even though she has been dead for like 50 years now. I still think of her. Mm. What a cosmology you had at such a young age. Oh my goodness, to even appreciate that. Someone had to die for us to be born. Wow. What a gift. What a gift. So, um, well, I I started at the beginning of your book, and I have so many pages dog-eared, and I don't want to give away m much of the book because I want everyone to read the beautiful stories, but I did really appreciate what you wrote in your introduction. I've learned that being open to death is a powerful way to learn about living, that when we stop pretending we will live forever, a certain tightness begins to loosen. Slowly as we give ourselves permission to relax the vice grip we use to try to control our circumstances, a sense of freedom emerges from within. Oh my gosh, isn't that so true? But <laughs> getting there is, is the important thing or starting. Uh, 
That is so true. You know, Connie, since we were just talking about Buddhism, I thought I would throw in my my favorite lesson that I have learned from the Buddhists is a parable about shooting two arrows. Mm -hmm. And the first arrows we get shot with in life are things that happen that we have no control over. I mean, we will lose people that we love deeply. You know, we ourselves will get illnesses. Um, we will possibly lose poems. We will lose objects that are dear to us. We might go through a divorce. That's a huge loss. I mean, that, that stuff happens. Those arrows will hit us and they will be painful. But the second arrow is the arrow that is avoidable entirely. And that arrow is the one where we spin out of control. I mean, that's a normal part of grief, but if we keep going with it, we start wondering, oh no, like I'm doomed. Why did this happen to me? And we, we get stuck in that arrow and it goes on and on as a story that we glom on to our own personality. We think those stories are us. And we can cut that at the quick with some skills that we, we can learn um, over time. And from that, I really feel like we can grow. And the grief stories of my life have been the greatest places of spiritual growth that I've encountered. Mm -hmm. I still don't wish they happened, right. but they did. I mean, the fact, they did. Well, and as I was reading these stories, though, I didn't feel as though they were so much grief stories. I felt they were joy stories. I mean, that's the way you frame them. So I do yeah. think, and that that is what your your goal was with this book, was to show us that there is joy, right? The just this whole conversation, I would like for it to be an opening for those of us who have um, suffered this year from some of those losses you mentioned, and those of us who will suffer, you know, so henceforth, to know that talking about it and opening that door and loosening that vice grip that you talk about can be the beginning of a real healing journey as it has been for you. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that uh, people turn to their faith when uh, the stuff hits the fan, right? When things get really hard. And, and I suppose a lot of people might be turning to the faith of their childhood or to some kind of spiritual practice now during this interesting time that we are in. <laughs> Have you noticed a return to practices or a keener interest in spirituality? I think that, you know, this society that we are living in here in the United States is fascinating, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the quickest growing groups is the spiritual but not religious right, right. category. Um, and what doesn't get told about that group is that they might not define themselves by any specific tradition, but the spiritual piece still speaks to us. And that might not necessarily be within the walls of a church or a temple, but it can be out in nature. 
Um, it can be under the cathedral of the canopy of these beautiful trees. Um, and that is no less valid than, than, you know, these other traditions that have gone on for thousands of years, because I'm sure for thousands of years, people have, have derived a balm from right. being in nature. Sure. And in so many ways, that's why I was drawn to this metaphor of heartwood. I should back up and say that heartwood is the central core of a tree. It's that inner pillar that is most prized by woodworkers. And if you ever get to see the cross section of one of those giant trees, you'll see that the inner part is a little darker and the growth rings grow around it. And um, what I love about heartwood that I discovered is that it is it is inert, it's dead. It no longer participates in bringing nutrients and water throughout the tree. Its sole purpose is to support the growth rings that grow around it. Mm. And isn't that true of the people who we have lost? I mean, they become our heartwood. Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't lose them forever. They really are the essence and support and strength that we can draw upon as we continue to grow and flourish in our own lives. So um, I really was looking for a metaphor, a story from nature. So, um, so that people who might feel a little distant from a, a religious tradition per se, would also have somewhere to go. This nature speaks to all of us. Sure. And, and I hope that people come to see those who are in their heartwood as, as sustaining sources of strength. Mm, that great cloud of witnesses for the Christians. And I, I, I imagine, um, I haven't done an interfaith class in a long time since college, but I would imagine all of the religions have, have the same um, ideas about, or similar ideas about um, those that have gone before us. Um, are there any that are that really stand out to you as being particularly meaningful? Yeah, well, I um, you you had brought up that I have been part of the Zen Peacemaker delegation mm -hmm. to the Black Hills of South Dakota, where we've been meeting with elders. I've done this for the past three years, and hopefully, in the next few months, I will be meeting with this group again. But I, I love the honoring of the ancestors that's found in many indigenous cultures. And I was so lucky to be able to accompany these elders to um, a ceremony at the cemetery at Wounded Knee where a giant massacre had happened mm -hmm. years and years ago. And it, it had a quality um, that was a little bit different than what I feel I see in, in the Christian tradition that I had grown up in. There was really a sense of the ancestors being present with us, like right here, right in the room, um, right in that open space of the cemetery, um, was calling out to them by names. And one of my native teachers says, like, when you go outside and you look up at the nighttime sky and you see the stars, that's like seeing the campfires of the ancestors. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's so beautiful. The campfires of the ancestors. Mm -hmm. So pretty. And I wonder if there's any wisdom you have to offer in all your years working with hospice and sitting at um, the, 
the beds of those who were leaving, dying, leaving this world. As so many of us have lost loved ones uh, this year and not had the benefit of being with them or um, celebrating their lives in any kind of a formal ritualistic way, um, have you seen any um, interesting, uh, meaningful ways to celebrate the lives of those we have lost in the recent past? Yeah. Can you give us well, some ideas? I would say um, I would first give voice to how hard this loss, this separation during loss is. Um, my aunt, who was like a third parent to me and my brothers, died in a nursing home um, during the beginning of the COVID pandemic in New York, which was so intense and so horrible ambulances going up and down the streets all the time morgue trucks parked outside of hospitals and my brother was lucky enough to be able to have permission to go with a full protective outfit and lots of masks and gloves um to be at her bedside in the last hours of her life and he put me on with her on speakerphone on his cell phone and I am telling you, I had sat with hundreds and hundreds, perhaps even a thousand hospice patients at that point. But that was so hard to be away to, you know, do you just want to hold their hand or brush the, the hair off their forehead and mm -hmm. just be present? And I had to listen to her breathing over the phone and it still, it breaks my heart, but my brothers and I, talking about calling in the ancestors, we did that sort of spontaneously. My parents had passed away um, just a couple of years before, and um, she had such a close relationship with them, and we, we brought in their essence. We, you know, we said, Aunt Bev, Mom and Dad are right here with you. Grandma is here your dog laddie you know just to that meant a lot to me because i had a, a laddie golden retriever so when i read that it was like oh that was so sweet and yeah. you know what i loved about your writing about aunt bev is you almost guided guided her into the next realm by help, helping her to relax and is that something you learned in hospice in your hospice work because i would just i'm curious about that yeah. So it, it wasn't a specific thing I learned. And, and I think that's important because I mm -hmm. think we have to trust our instincts around death. And I think we all have this inner compass. We don't really know that we even have until we are in that moment of having to say goodbye to someone. And then all of a sudden instinct kicks in and we know in our heart of hearts what to do. And because her breathing was so labored, it just kind of came to me to do a, a guided meditation with her to relax the different parts of her body and to just sort of release and surrender. And it worked. I mean, I could hear her breathing getting calmer. And my brother said it got him calmer and it certainly helped me too. Mm -hmm. But um, to really just do what we all really know how to do, but we've kind of forgotten because because we don't have people so much anymore. 
um, being cared for in our homes when we got to witness our parents taking care of our grandparents or our grandparents took care of their parents. But now, you know, that doesn't that doesn't happen as much. And it's a bit of a loss, I would yeah. say, in our society. Yeah, a big loss. It really is. It is. But we can get back there. We absolutely can. And there is a a huge movement and um, lots of people who are trained, deaf doulas and hospice workers. Mm -hmm. And there is a a beautiful caregiving moment where we are beginning to take back that wisdom Mm -hmm. that we all shared. You can even major in thanatology now at schools. It's a whole new thing. Um, I really loved how you wrote about your dad when you went up to him and you said, Dad, you know, you'll be 88 this summer or 87, 88. And he looked at you and he was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Can you just talk about that sweet moment and how you just let your dad speak? Another thing that we might not do. My father was a brilliant man. He was a neurosurgeon and neurosurgeons are no dummies. Mm -hmm. um, Unfortunately, he um, had Alzheimer's disease towards the end of his life. And, um, you know, for a man who studied the brain, who lived by the brain, his own brain was being deteriorated, you know, seemingly day by day Mm -hmm. at a certain point. And it, it sort of softened him a little bit. Um, he, he became childlike and just curious, um, even more sort of curious in a childlike way, even about Alzheimer's. Like he wondered what was happening in his brain. And he said to me at one point, um, how old am I right now? And I said, you know, you're 87. And he said, and when is my birthday? And I told him it was coming up. And he said, well, I will make it to 88 and then I will slip away. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, it was such a stunning moment. And I, I said, well, dad, you have lived such a long and beautiful life. You have helped so many people. And he said, but what do you think? Is this the time to, to go? He was asking And I think it was one of the hardest things I ever had to say. But I, I said, yeah, dad, I I think the time is about right. And I, you know, I still think about that. He just wanted somebody to be honest with him. And I'm so glad that I had had all of these opportunities to be with the wonderful people I had been with on hospice, who I consider all as my teacher, to just meet him where he was. And he was ready to go. And he just needed somebody to affirm that for him. Sure, sure. And these days, there's a lot of talk um, about compassion fatigue for those who are tending to the sick and the dying. uh, on a 24-7 basis in many cases. Um, do you have practices that keep you centered and keep you in that place where you are able to give when called upon? Oh, what an important question, because I do think that in this pandemic, we have a whole generation of of caregivers who are going to be suffering like a form of PTSD as a result of all of this trauma. I find that 
setting intentions is incredibly important. Like, I, you know, I would arrive on the hospice floor and there were 25 beds, so 25 people very, very close to the end of life. And it would be so easy to do what we always do, like to throw off your coat and put your badge on and just run into a room. But I would like do a sacred pause before every door. I actually would put my hand on the frame of the door and just like have a moment of being in my body, feeling my breath and not moving a step forward until I felt grounded and secure enough to be present for them rather than to bring my mishigas of my outside life into Mm -hmm. into that room and I would do the same thing when I exited I mean I would leave behind the the stories of the person I was just leaving so I could be again fully present for the next person so I do think that mindfulness techniques and whatever works for for us are so important to remember to be embodied to breathe to light a candle, you know, to take out your rosary, you know, to look at a picture of a loved one. Um, whatever works for you is so important to preserve in, in going forth into that work. But as for those larger traumas, I'm, I am really reminded of um, 9-11, 2001, mm-hmm. When I was um, working downtown, not far from the World Trade Tower that day when the planes hit the towers, and um, I saw the whole thing unfold from just a couple blocks away with my, my son in a stroller heading to daycare. He worked, or his daycare was a block away at Trinity Church from the towers. And that morning was horrible for all of us. And being that close meant that I actually saw people jumping and I experienced the dust and the terror of that day. There were grief counselors that were brought into the office where I was working nearby. And they said to us, if there are any losses in your life, like you must deal with them as they come. So if, if this, um, you know, if you saw something this day, you're feeling deeply about this day, deal with it now, talk about it now, find grief counselors now, because grief has this funny way, if you sweep it under the rug, of reappearing when you least want to have it happen. Like, you know, something will trigger you and you will find yourself in the grocery store bawling your eyes out because... Mm-hmm. You know, your father ate this chocolate that's on the shelf. Or um, you will experience another form of grief in your life, and it will bring up every past grief you have ever experienced. Um, So it is true, and those things will still happen to some degree anyhow. That's a natural part of the grief journey. But working through grief as we confront it is is really critical for for moving forward. What has been um, the most powerful healing experience for you? Did you uh, reach out for counseling or spiritual uh, guidance or um, what has what has been helpful? So um, I have and uh, one of the 
I, I worked with two Zen monks in mm-hmm. learning how to be with the dying. These two beautiful men who started a group called the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. And they are both wonderful. And one of them, um, Chodo, his name is, he leads grief sessions. And when my parents died, and they died just less than three months apart, mm-hmm. I was bereft. I know. In spite of all the work that I had done and the moments of incredible beauty that I somehow managed to find in their final days, the weight of that kind of caught up with me. And I went to his um, grief circle with other people who maybe 10 other people who had lost someone near and dear to them. And being in community with other grievers is in and of itself incredibly healing. I mean, we honored each other's stories and we didn't elevate anyone's grief over anyone else's. So there was someone whose child had died by suicide, which is horrible, with what intense grief. There was also a woman who brought a picture from her sonogram and she had had a miscarriage so she never got to know her child but that grief to her was just as important an experience Mm -hmm. and I think we kind of we can do this to each other it's terrible to say like oh you know that that grief must have really hurt and that grief like I don't know maybe not so much and and I say like honor it all and that's Mm -hmm. what being in that healing circle did for me it Mm -hmm. really um it uh, it made everybody heard. Um, I was also in a grief circle once that I loved, where we spent one entire session dissing on the person who died. <laughs> <laughs> and this is such a great idea because, you know, like human relationships are not perfect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you might remember a time when you were really mad about your something your dad did or your mom did or your Mm -hmm. child did and you just kind of have to get that out so in the most safe of places we were given permission in the community of grievers to just let our hair down Mm -hmm. and and be real and And then and then we honored that yes yes that's truth that's truth right and and also the practice of lament, being able to just lament, which I think is a lost practice as well in our world, um, our contemporary world. Yeah. Yes. My husband, um, husband's family comes from the Jewish tradition, and I have seen people tear um, a symbolic tear of mm-hmm. a shirt mm-hmm. um, or a ribbon and wearing that. And yes, like... We want to tear things. Sometimes we want to break things, throw things out the window. Like that's how grief expresses itself sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's healthy too. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of times you were you were mentioning the um, the comparison of the grief. And a lot of times good-hearted people will try to make you feel uh, better by comparing your grief to someone else's who may have been harder and that's well-intentioned but it usually doesn't work doesn't it usually doesn't it help, does so. not it so does not work mm-hmm. and you know I I actually thought that I would I would bring up this little thing that's going on in my life that's actually not mm-hmm. so little okay. um, 
at the moment, which is that I was just diagnosed with breast cancer, mm. like just a couple weeks before this book is going to be launched into the world. And um, what you were saying about comparing um, grief, I am seeing a little bit in the world of cancer, you know, um, that like, what are you? Are you stage four, three, two, one? You know, like there's some um, crazy hierarchy that gets put out there that we um, we're doing each other a disservice when we do that. Yeah, it's the data. We just need to be yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Why why do we obsess about the data? Hmm, crazy. Yeah. Maybe to protect ourselves, mm-hmm. you know. I, I think another question that I, I frequently hear, and I saw this a lot during COVID too, was people want to figure out why this thing happened to you. Mm-hmm. Like, why did you get COVID? Or were they overweight? Were they? Did they have an underlying condition? Were they old? And boy, when we ask those questions, I see that we're trying to find out that we're not in that category. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're sort of saying like, oh, few, or, or maybe dismissing um, the experience of someone who has that disease or suffered from that pandemic. Mm-hmm. We, we just don't want to stay there in the place. So let's, let's stay here with what you just revealed to us and explore what your own teachings have prepared you for and, and, and certainly there, there is that uncertainty um, that you are facing. We don't know how the treatment is going to unfold. We don't know, we don't know how it's going to be as time. But um, how has your preparation prepared you for this very moment? And what do you, wh- where are you right now in this present moment with your diagnosis? Yeah. So, oh my goodness, what really, what a moment, Connie. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, um, um, there's part of a diagnosis like this that can completely blindside you come out of left field. I mean, I, this is nothing I could feel. It was found on a mammogram. I have huge feelings of gratitude for the technology Mm -hmm. that we have, um, the preventative medicine. Um, And I also um, sort of got the news in a way um, that, oh, here it is. Like, yes, this happens to everyone, and this is happening to me. Now, impermanence is one of the big lessons of the traditions of the East, especially Buddhism, that we, we don't last forever, and every single thing is subject to change. And... I had a huge hit of, of that lesson of impermanence when I was given the news. And as you said, and going back to that Buddhism second arrow, like the um, catastrophizing that I could be doing about what might happen um, is the potential for that is so enormous, right? And I'm finding on this cancer journey, and it's so new, that everything just has to happen step by step. So you have to go for another test, and maybe you'll do genetic testing, and you know what kind of surgery are you going to have? And only after that do they know whether you're going to have radiation and chemo or radiation and chemo, and then what drugs will you be on for the rest of your life? And everything 
everything unfolds. But if you stay present to it, you sort of stay out of the mind that would fly all over the place out of control. I have a dear friend who has um, multiple sclerosis. And when I told him and I told him about some of my big fears, he said, just stay present. You know, don't write chapter 21 when you're only on chapter four. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that has been such a comfort to me. Not to compare, but Gloria, our friend Gloria, way long ago, had her own breast cancer, and she's 80, 88, 87 yes. now. So That's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> she was in her early 50s mm -hmm. when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And back at that time, she said there weren't women in their 80s, or so many of them, or so many of them who were willing to talk, who had mm -hmm. gone through this. Right. Um, so she, there was a period of loneliness. Mm -hmm. And I am all about demystifying death, our human mm -hmm. frailty, our, all, all of our losses. So I am just glad to be able to, to talk about this so that other, other people, other women in this case, especially, um, you know, know that we're kind of in this, we're in the sisterhood together. We are. We, can get this. we are. I feel another book coming along. <laughs> <laughs> now you talk about death as in the, in the feminine. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I personally love that. <laughs> yeah. So you know, the depictions of death that we have been subjected to are, you know, a figure with a skeletal face and a dark cloak and a bony finger that kind of beckons you right. and a scythe in the other hand. And how terrifying is that? And I think maybe because of my father's first wife experience, um, I have always had the feeling that death could be a woman, you know, and death could be a friend. Can we befriend death? Um, death to me almost feels like mother-like, like someday being called into the lap of just the divine feminine. Um, and it's such a gut feeling that I have that really is like a, a big shift um, in the way I think that most people think about death. So I'm going to stick with it. I'm mm -hmm. going with death as a woman, death That's, as a friend. I love it. It's so much softer and sweeter. <laughs> and just like your dad said, we just slip away. I we had just... an experience with um, my grandmother who had passed, and she came to me in a dream, and she kind of showed me what it was like to to transition into that. And it was very easy, and I choose to believe that too, and that, that was a very feminine sort of experience for me, so. Oh, Connie, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. absolutely beautiful. We just slip away. Yeah. Well, I, instead of asking you to leave us with something um, inspirational, since you are going through it right now and living here, I'm just going to ask everyone who's listening to send Barbara prayers of goodness and health and vitality. And let's just surround you with love and light as you move forward with your journey so, so that we can be part of it with you. No, you're not alone. 
Connie, I have tears of warmth and joy coming down my cheeks right now. I am so grateful to you and all of your beloveds. And uh, I'm sending you the absolute best, too. Thank you. Well, I commend to you all Heartwood, the art of living. And you get to find out about this beautiful tree at the end of the book. So you will you will be so excited when you finally have this image of this beautiful tree as you complete the book. Thank you so much, Barbara, for talking and sharing your wisdom. And you do have a website so people can find more information about the book and you. BarbaraBecker.com. Is there, any... there are a lot okay. of resources there too for people who are going through some kind of loss. So beautiful. I hope that you'll visit. Well, beautiful. So you are my first introduction to pastoral care for my seminary. Uh, so thank you for that. You've given me a lot, a lot to uh, start with. So I'll carry it with me. You're great at it. You're already <laughs> doing it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, um, thank you for this book and for your presence here on this podcast. And namaste, my new friend. Namaste. Namaste. Blessings to you.